You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Prison Poems, Citizens of Joy in Circumstance of Suffering. In this series from Paul's letter to the Philippians, we learn how to press into the source of true joy, citizenship in heaven through our union with Christ. Let's um, stand together for the reading of God's word. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to to God. God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here. Peace be with you. We just heard part of a letter from a minister named Paul who has been imprisoned for claiming that Jesus is alive. The authorities say that Jesus is dead, executed as a criminal about 30 years before the writing of this letter. But Paul saw Jesus after his death and has experienced a relationship with Jesus that he cannot stop talking about. He says, rejoice. Paul is overflowing with joy, even in jail. And he wants everyone to know. He's like Buddy the Elf. I'm in love. I'm in love. And I don't care who knows it. Thank you in the back. (laughs) Remember. As the Philippians are hearing this letter, they've already heard Paul say that he prays with joy for them. He rejoices even in chains. They should rejoice together and joyfully welcome Epaphroditus, whom we learned about last week in Pastor Stephen's sermon. But how can we rejoice? Not just how can we have fun or how can we feel content when good things are happening, when we're safe, when our loved ones are safe and warm. How can we have joy all of our days, even in hard times. You've been a good Christian, right? You've tried various Bible reading plans. Maybe you've switched churches three or four times. But in spite of all that you've tried, maybe you still couldn't say that your life is characterized by joy. And yet Paul says rejoice. And not to a group of likely Jesus followers. So backstory time here uh, about 15 years before Paul wrote this letter, which was nearly 15 years after a Jewish troublemaker was executed in Jerusalem, this group of people in the Roman colony of Philippi became the first community in Europe to say that Jewish troublemaker was God, and he rose from the dead. It started in Acts chapter 16. Acts is a history of the early church. And in the 16th chapter, when Paul and his protege Timothy arrived in Philippi, they found a women's prayer group meeting by the river. Paul didn't avoid them. He didn't ignore them. He didn't say, take us to your men. He preached the gospel to them. And among that prayer group was a businesswoman named Lydia who sold high-end, expensive fashion. Lydia gave her life to Jesus becoming the first European Christian, and then talked Paul and his ministry team into staying at her house. The whole church in Philippi began meeting there, and all of her household 
became Christians. Now, when I say that, don't, don't think of your home, your spouse, your 2.5 kids. Think more like Downton Abbey with scores of butlers and maids and cooks and carpenters. Probably not quite as big as Downton Abbey, but more like that than our homes. Next, Paul healed a demon-possessed slave woman in Jesus' name for which he spent a night in jail. Then uh, the prison bars miraculously swung open, which led to the prison guard and all of his household becoming Christians. So, a wealthy European businesswoman, a slave, a prison guard, three income brackets, three ways of life, none of whom would have been ideal candidates or would have seemed like ideal candidates for declaring their eternal allegiance to an executed Jewish rabbi. Paul tells them rejoice and then immediately warns of something that can kill their joy. Maybe this will give us a clue about how we can live with joy in 21st century America. Verse 2, he writes, watch out for the dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Here we have a threefold warning. And when the Bible repeats something three times, it's like a trumpet blast saying, pay attention. He's warning about a certain kind of false teacher and he calls them dogs. And the Philippians wouldn't have imagined American house pets. These were dirty, dangerous strays who ran in packs. They were scavengers who would eat any kind of garbage, including feces, another animal's, or their own. Paul is referring to certain teachers of Old Testament law. The reference to to mutilation is a hyperbolic statement about circumcision. He's talking about people who... uh, taught that dogs are unclean animals, who called other people groups uh, dogs. And Paul is saying, no, they are the dogs. Where does circumcision come in? Ouch. You all know what that is, right? Old Testament law commanded parents to circumcise their male babies as a sign that they were included in God's special covenant with Israel. The females didn't get a sign of their own. They were included because their fathers or brothers or husbands were circumcised. And Paul doesn't have a problem with circumcision per se. He writes elsewhere, Galatians 5, verse 6, When we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. But where Paul comes out swinging is when teachers demand that other cultures must conform in order to really be a part of God's family. Now, why would this be a temptation for Greek businesswomen, prison guards, and slaves? Wouldn't Lydia and her women's prayer group have been delighted that they get to partake in the visible signs of the new covenant, baptism and communion, because it's no longer just about whether their husbands or fathers received the sign of circumcision? Wouldn't the Philippian prison guard have said, I'm so glad that I can be a part of God's family and I don't have to feel the knife? If we can figure out why Paul would need to give such a warning to the Philippians, it might begin to tell us how we can look out for something that will rob us of our joy. Remember, the Philippian authorities persecuted Christians. Paul had been thrown in jail for casting a demon out of a slave. But Judaism was protected as an official religion in the Roman 
Empire. Doesn't mean it was held in high esteem, but it had certain legal protections, and this is how the Roman and Jewish courts could collaborate together on the execution of Jesus. So, if the Philippian church could just follow Judaism's customs, but then believe in Jesus privately, then maybe they could avoid persecution. What's the big deal about the males in the church getting circumcised if it will keep them from losing their businesses or perhaps even being thrown in jail? What would Sojourn do? Verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. A thing is wrong when it's a betrayal of the gospel. Remember, the command in verse 1 was to rejoice in the Lord. Lasting joy is only possible through union with Christ. This is why He made us. If we exist for a relationship with God, but we find our joy, our satisfaction, declare our primary allegiance to something else, then we're going against our purpose. We're like a hammer trying to saw trees or a saw trying to hammer nails or Buddy the Elf trying to build etch-a-sketches up in the North Pole. We just end up feeling like cotton-headed ninny-muggins. Man's too big for the Elf Workshop. He doesn't belong there. So why was circumcision wrong then and what might be wrong in our day? First, if you're tempted to do say or act a certain way or suppress an aspect of your union with Christ in order to, be, to avoid being ridiculed as a Christian or to losing business as a Christian business owner, that would be like if the Philippian jailer submitted to circumcision and then just worship Jesus behind closed doors. Second, when Paul says we are the circumcision, He is reminding us that our life is in Christ, who was circumcised and kept all of the Old Testament law perfectly. Israel had never been faithful to God's covenant, so God himself took on flesh. And in his human nature, he became faithful Israel. He fulfilled the terms of his own covenant for Israel when Israel could not do that. And then Jesus, the new Israel, offered his perfect life as the sacrifice for us all. So to remain bound to the old covenant is to try to be Israel when Jesus already did that. It's like trying to win a race when Jesus has already won the blue ribbon. All the spectators have gone home hours ago and you're still running around the track alone in the dark. The race is over. Jesus has the blue ribbon. He is the faithful Israelite, and our privilege is to be united with him, participating in him. And in this way, we share the credit that he earned. In this way, we are the new Israel because our lives are hidden in Christ. So the problem with what the dogs are saying is, number one, it's unnecessary. These are now just cultural customs. Number two, it's a denial of grace an insistence that we can do it on our own. And number three, in imposing one group's customs, we're showing that we are not Christ-like. Jesus, whom we are united to and becoming like, is the one who walked into Samaria, a despised town populated by a marginalized race. He talked theology with a woman. Hebrew leaders of his day said it would be better to burn sacred writings than use them to equip 
women. And she was an adulterous woman who had to fetch water by herself after everyone else had got their fill. An outcast among outcasts. He told her that he was the Messiah before he told anyone else. And when she said, Jesus, your people claim that we have to travel to one particular place to worship God, but then we're not welcome in that place. He, he didn't say, your people are no better. He didn't say, oh, no, 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 we're not going to talk about those old gripes. We're just going to discuss your personal moral failings. I have the dirt on you. He met her in her need, her defensiveness, the pain that she had been born into, he, because he was making all things new. He said, all people everywhere can worship God anywhere, in spirit and in truth. And then she evangelized the whole town and many Samaritans came to hear Jesus. This same Jesus, later, when he was about to ascend to his father and he gave his followers the commission to carry the gospel, just in case they might be tempted to roll back the changes, he said, you're going to go all over Judea and Samaria. And then you're going to go everywhere. And he knew with the Holy Spirit inside them, they weren't just going to go from country to country and town to town and pop in and do a quick little evangelistic message and then pop right back out without having actually met anyone. They were going to actually become friends, truly brothers and sisters with people who looked differently, who talked differently, who sang different kind of songs, who played different sorts of games. They would... Uh, do business in the marketplace. They would work with these people. Like think Paul, building, making tents with Priscilla and Aquila. They were going to plant churches with these people. They were going to grow churches with these people. They were going to go on mission trips with these people. And when they were separated, they would become pen pals with all these new brothers and sisters because of the blood of Jesus. This is the one that Paul is united to and it's filled him with joy. He won't abide false teachers who say, it's fine to study Jesus, but nothing has really changed. There is one chosen ethnic group, and you have to do things our way. There's a, a, a biblical scholar named Lynn Kohick who wrote a commentary on the book of Philippians, and she says this about this, this passage here. He does not ask Jewish believers to work on the Sabbath or to eat a pork sandwich. What he asks is that no one demand that one group change to become like another group, that no group established their ethnic practices as the standard of holiness. As Paul says elsewhere, there is no more Jew nor Greek, nor male nor female, nor slave nor free. We are one in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. He says, look, if following these customs was the way to experience joy in our union with Christ, I would have you all beat. You Greeks can become followers of Judaism, but I can trace my roots to a specific tribe. Verse 6, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. No one could have pointed to anything about the way Paul used to live and said, well, he just wasn't doing it right. Verse 7, 
but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Gain and loss are marketplace terms, Wall Street terms, business terms. Lydia and her business friends would have understood this clearly. The currency of ancestry and cultural customs are now worthless assets. It's like Confederate money. Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. And this word we translate as garbage means food thrown away or excrement, which the stray dogs would eat. Now remember, he said, the people who claim you must put your hope in Christ plus stuff that you do are like the stray dogs who eat doo-doo. So his point is, don't be like the stray dogs. They eat their own poo. That's not a way to be. Dog poo, right. Know what's better than eating doggy doo? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And this means to know him personally and relationally. Again, Paul is like Buddy the Elf, Santa, I know him. And he isn't fooled by the fake Santa at the store who can't really bring toys to all the good little girls and boys. He says to the false gospel, you stink. You sit on a throne of lies. You're not Santa. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The relationship begins when we put our hope in Christ, who reconciled all of us to God and to each other, men, women, rich, poor, black, white, Jew, Greek, prisoner, prison guard. We are one in Christ. So for this relationship, we suffer. It may cost the businesswoman her business. It may land the prison guard behind bars. And it may keep the slave in poverty. After all, as Paul is writing this, he's in jail. So let's recap our dilemma just in case you've gotten lost in the weeds of Paul's argument. Number one, to be a Christian is to rejoice in the Lord. Number two, hope in Christ plus anything else is not really hope in Christ. Number three, these other things will pull you from Christ. Four, then you will not reflect his character. Five, you'll demand others conform or close your heart to them. Six, this way of life is a false hope. Seven, but rejecting it will bring suffering and persecution. Now, if all of this is true, how in the world are we supposed to rejoice? Joy is fueled by desire. And no one knows about desire and longing like someone who is suffering. I wish I could say differently, but in all my life, I've found over and over that the times I've experienced Christ the most clearly are times of suffering, isolation, sickness, insecurity, and tragedy. Sooner or later, a time of suffering will come. 
Remember, the Philippian church was born after Paul was miraculously delivered from jail. But now, years later, he's writing this letter from another jail in another city. And this time, there's no miracle. In fact, we know that Paul's life will end in execution. Our suffering reminds us that Jesus suffered for us. We turn from our entertainments and distractions, realizing the only hope we have is the only hope we need. We pray, we read God's word, we press into church community, and we seek Christ. He reminds us that he knows what suffering feels like, but his comfort doesn't end there. Verse 10. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul writes verses 10 and 11 using a Hebrew poetry device. So this is another prison poem. Now remember these two verses, uh, Paul didn't write in a chapter and verse format. We put chapters and verses in the Bible centuries later to make it easier for us to to find things as like a reference tool. Uh, Paul wrote this as like a four-line poem in the midst of this letter. Now, Hebrew poetry didn't rhyme, but it did have other devices that do what rhyme does for us, helps us remember the lines, and as Pastor Jonah would say, puts a little sizzle in the pan. So for the next 30 seconds or so, you're all in poetry class. Don't worry. We're going to get through this. This is going to be quick and painless. We have four lines here. So the first line, the power of his resurrection. So we'll call that topic A or subject A, talking about resurrection. The next line, participation in his sufferings. That's a different topic. He's moved from resurrection to sufferings. Third line, becoming like him in his death. So still suffering, suffering unto death. And then the fourth line, attaining to the resurrection of the dead. He's back to the subject of the first line, talking about the resurrection. In this poetry device called a chiasmus, the first and the last lines echo each other, and the middle lines reinforce each other. So here the first and the last lines are about resurrection, and they enfold, they encircle the lines about suffering. What is Paul getting at? He's saying the power of the resurrection is the hope that enfolds us, like a great big hug from dad. When you experience suffering as a follower of Christ, the only hope anyone has is the only hope everyone needs. So let's sum all of this up. In Paul's culture, he'd been successful, revered, and the perfect example of a proud heritage. But when he saw the risen Christ, he traded every advantage, every comfort, all of his privilege and reputation for the service of Christ to all peoples, even through persecution, because he knew that a relationship with Jesus is the only source of lasting joy. So, verse 11, attaining to the resurrection from the dead is with Jesus whom we have participated in through our suffering. The same power who raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit, equips us to show the family resemblance to all people. We display our union with Christ by how we treat everyone, 
not by our cultural customs. We treat others the way Jesus did, which brings us joy even in the midst of suffering. The only hope anyone has is the only hope everyone needs. So here's my Monday challenge to you, something to begin thinking about tomorrow, to pray about tomorrow, um, to think about by yourself or with your spouse, with a friend, with a community group. Remember that person or people who used to make you cringe before you fully submitted to Christ as Lord. Maybe you can name specific people, specific person. Maybe it's certain kinds of people. Reflect on how Christ has changed you, has driven you to make amends, to love, to serve those that you once looked down on or even considered as enemies. Now, while you're doing that, think back to the suffering you've endured since coming to Christ. And I don't know what it is for you, job loss, poverty, divorce, sickness, injury, the loss of loved ones, maybe and probably a combination of all of those kinds of things. You could have rejected Jesus. You could have grown callous to him. You could have grown more embittered toward others. But instead, he has made you more like him, even through suffering. So after reflecting on that, rejoice. This is evidence that you are participating in him and becoming like him with the guarantee that his resurrection will be yours. Share these stories with your family, with your friends, with your community group, and encourage those who share similar stories. Let them know that you see Jesus in them. Now, if you can't honestly say that you've changed, if you still just can't forgive mom, if you're still fighting with your coworker after all of these years, if you're guilty of any of these big isms that Jesus and Paul fought and that the church is still fighting today, classism, sexism, racism, now you know what to pray for. And there's much work to do, but the Spirit will do the work in you if you will yield to Him. Because remember, The only hope anyone has is the only hope everyone needs. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this one, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Then he took a cup of wine like this one, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me until I come again. So when you walked in, you hopefully picked up a little communion cup. If you didn't, you'll find these in the very back. There's a basket right in front, right on top of our sound booth. You can pick up one of these uh, and tear it open. I'm going to try not to spill the juice up here. And then after the the tear-off portion, there's a tiny wafer. If you're not a Christian, don't partake of communion. It wouldn't make sense for you to do so. It it's, symbolizes a covenant that you've accept, not accepted in the first place. But instead, I urge you to pray to receive Christ. And then we can prepare you in the weeks to come to partake of the, the 
public sign that you are accepting the covenant. Not circumcision, baptism. And then you can take communion with us in the weeks to come. The body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was shed for you. We receive communion to remember that God gave first. In response to this, we give him all of our love, all of our lives. So, after taking communion, we'll sing one final song, and then we invite you to respond by giving your tithes and offerings. You can either do that online, you can do it through the app, or you can do it through uh, just dropping off your offering at either of our giving boxes uh, by the two exits, one right there, and then there's one in the back of the room. God gave first, so we give back some of what he has entrusted to us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.